This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman. This is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 220, brought to you in association with Smart and theenlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined once again today by Mario Ineco, aka Meneco64, of the ever-growing YouTube channel entitled The Home of Alternative Economics and Contrarian Views, to discuss central banking per se. As you may have noticed, our social systems are in a mess, our economies are in a mess, our governance is a mess, and our culture is being carpet-bombed apart from which I suspect everything's quite fine and it's certainly a sunny morning today so the sun comes up regardless. However, we all know the problems, we've been talking about this once or twice. I think less well observed, even in folks that I know who have been in financial services for 40 years, is the connection between monetary collapse and social collapse. One of Mario's attributes is that he has an awesome knowledge and library of books on monetary history and interest in this topic. In this context of the correlation between monetary collapse and social collapse, Two that he recommends that I checked out are Fiat Inflation in Revolutionary France by Andrew Dickinson White, where you can get a free PDF online, and the classic When Money Dies by Ferguson about the Weimar Republic. Picking up this connection between perhaps the obscure issues of monetary policy and the less obscure issues of the society we live in, one frame one might have on the present is that the present is in large part the result of 1972 when Nixon, quotes, temporarily, unquotes, suspended the gold standard. Well, how would this be? Well, without diving into all the detail, in a fiat currency regime, aka totally bullshit money, as we've covered once or twice, politicians end up spending, 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 and central banks end up printing, printing, printing. This has happened many times throughout history, and the late David Graeber, in his book Debt the First 5,000 Years, covers many examples going back to biblical days. Naturally, politicians spending infinite amounts of money and central banks printing infinite amounts of money totally fucks up the economy. And that's before we get into the ideas of the globalists right now. You know, those folks who are living the Hunger Games dream, flying in private jets and telling ordinary Joe to take the bus. Or rather not to take the bus, because it causes climate change. So, what could possibly be done about this? If we ever get through the current insanity and have to rebuild, The key behind all this is, in terms of where we are at the moment, the critical role of central banks in monetary policy. And we can ask a very simple question, are they a good thing? Taking the US as it's a clearer case, the Federal Reserve is a 20th century construct. But even in England, for the vast majority of the past N centuries, there's been no central bank. And if you take a look at chart of N centuries, let's say a thousand years worth of inflation in England, you'll see that the prima facie evidence the bloated nanny state, in this case in the guise of technocratic central bankers have to answer, is at a minimum they've got a lot of explaining to do because the crazy inflations seem to only actually really happen in periods of having a central banks apart from one or two other notable exceptions. At a macro level the 20th century was notable for the hyper bloating in the West of power in the hands of a centralized few, a state which has ended up as a smothering nanny. Indeed, central banks creating currency is the ultimate in unelected power with all their decisions inevitably benefiting one group at the expense of another. 
As we saw in 2008, with the notable exception of Iceland who bankrupted their banks, not their people, in the US and the UK and the like, central banks bankrupted their people to ensure that banks and bankers continue to have their pockets lined, literally in the case of multi-million bonuses for bankers in London in 2008-9-10. So the challenge is, if you're against limitless printing of paper money to enrich the rich and impoverish the average Joe, what is the opposite and how would it work? If we all find a free island in the world and go back to draining almost all the power from the centre and the hands of a few, how would money work? What would have happened if Ron Paul had managed to end the Fed? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Mario. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning, Mike, and thank you for having me on again. So we were just chatting beforehand and I was saying that uh, I was impressed by a couple of things, one of which is your work rate. You churn out daily YouTube videos, which take some doing and as a lazy sod who only manages to do one audio podcast every two weeks that's totally beyond my conception. Uh, I think I'm allergic to hard work, it's always been a bit of a problem for me. And the second regard was that one of your recent updates was from the uh, pieces in Switzerland which looked truly beautiful and having not been skiing for a few years and, and failed to go skiing three years ago when I, we actually had arrived in France that day when France was shut down which was unlucky. It seemed a very nice place to be. So whereabouts in, in, in Switzerland were you and, and how was the snow? Yeah, we were in the Bernese uh, Oberland, in the Zannenland it's called, and the snow was great. And where I was skiing was about 1,500 to 2,000 meters, maybe a bit more. And there's a, a lot of different mountains connected. So you had a lot of options and uh, it was really cold. So the snow was uh, really good and I really enjoyed it. Oh, excellent. Well, uh, as I mentioned once or twice before, uh, the Ballymans are originally from Switzerland and uh, I rather wished that my, uh, when my great-grandfather returned to Switzerland, he'd, he'd taken my grandparents with him. <laughs> They'd certainly have a better currency as long, along with the better weather. So rather than excessive chit-chatting beforehand, because we've got quite a big topic here, why don't we just go straight into diving into the main course? And before we get on to this tutorial discussion of central banking, which like many things in the modern state is taken for granted by the vast majority, but those people who are actually trying to think outside the box can see that it is one of the fundamental things, without the reform of which one's going to struggle to do anything else, including improve the sort of social situation and the, the, the massive divisions between the, the hyper-rich and everyone else. Before we dive into that, a year ago you were on the show and you were one of the first people to talk about, and you've been talking about it for some time, this strange word called de-dollarization, and this is before the Ukraine war broke out, which simply from the perspective of the American dollar currency, they had a catastrophic idea of freezing the Russian central bank uh, reserves, which seemed to have various implications and other, other countries around the world noticed that. So we've got de-dollarization and we've got the whole multipolarity, we've got the BRICS, we've got ideas that the BRICS are going to harden their currencies and and CBDCs, uh, most central banks of the world have been examining them, but it's a dog that hasn't barked yet. So before we dive into the strategic question of central banks per se, maybe you'd like to update us uh, briefly on how the, the last year has gone and what your outlook is for 2023. Yeah, I, I think 2008 uh, was a big wake-up call for the Chinese and other uh, dollar creditors. And uh, at the time, they uh, decided to start investing or adding gold to their reserves because they could see that uh, you know the dollar could go 
any time like it almost did in 08. So since 2022, in the beginning of the year before we spoke, before the uh, Ukraine war kicked off, I had been talking about de-dollarization and also in the context of 08 and also in the fact that the U.S. and its allies were using the dollar as a, as a political weapon. So uh, it was normal that China and Russia started looking into options to de-dollarize, to, to be less dependent on the petrodollar. Like I've spoken about how China has created uh, exchanges in Shanghai precious metals exchanges, uh, uh, also commodities exchanges, the new payment system in China and, and also in Russia. So they've all been uh, preparing for this, I think. And, and they know that uh, a fiat currency like the, the dollar, which it has been since Nixon closed the gold window in the early 70s, doesn't last forever. And uh, I think what the Ukraine war has done is it's accelerated this process of de-dollarization because uh, there's been a, a blatant uh, breakage of the rule of law here, uh, international law, by uh, the uh, Americans and the, the West basically freezing a few hundred billion of Russian uh, reserves. And I think uh, the Chinese, they realized that, well, we could be next and we've got a lot more reserves than the, uh, the Russians. And uh, lo and behold, today I saw a, a headline that uh, uh, China added another 15 metric tons of gold to their reserves, the People's Bank of China, in January. And they announced it that they added in November and December. And I think that's a signal to the world because the Chinese usually take a few years to uh, update their uh, reserves they do it like let's say uh, once and then they wait four years and they do it again but now they're doing it every month so yeah and, and the BRICS, uh, they're going along with uh russia and china because i think when we in the west look at the news they say the world is united against uh, russia and uh, in favor you know defending uh, ukraine and i'm not taking sides here but if you look at a world map you look at the world that's with NATO, it's not many countries. The rest of the world, they're neutral. They're not like saying that uh, they think what Russia is doing and what's happening in Ukraine is right, but uh, they're, they're not taking sides. And uh, I, I think you mentioned it as well in something you sent me that even during World War II, the Germans, uh, they kept doing business. In the, they were in the BIS, the German uh, Reichsbank representative, and there was an American uh, representative. He wasn't from the Fed, but I think he was from a, one of the New York banks. And uh, so the enemies uh, were doing business in the BIS, but now they've completely cut off Russia. And I think it's a wake-up call. And what happened in uh, December, December 7th, when the uh, president of China went to Saudi Arabia and met the... Uh, Saudi uh, royal family, uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. He also met the other leaders from the Gulf Cooperation Council. Yeah, this is uh, like uh, the creation. I think it will be a date that will be remembered. Is the creation of the, the Petro Yuan and the move away from the petrodollar. I don't think the Saudis are going to stop using dollars because they've said so. I think there's an official at Davos who said... We just want to be able to use whatever currency we, we want. So all that's going to do, it's going to create less demand for dollars uh, all around the world. And uh, that's going to hurt Americans because historically in the last 50, 60 years, 
they've been able just to print and borrow and uh, not have to earn foreign reserves to buy, buy anything. And I think we're already starting to see that with the uh, prices rising in the US. Yes, totally. And it's analogous to the decline of sterling as the world currency back in the day. And as you say, there is a considerable economic value of having the world's currency for a whole bunch of reasons. And my macro take on this is that last year was a catastrophic one with a pretty catastrophic administration for America, even from an American state perspective. And they basically cocked it up and once again, totally misunderstood the strength of Russia. So back in the day, oh, about 30 years ago, before the fall of the Iron Curtain in the, the USSR, I think the CIA were known to have massively overestimated the strength of the Soviet Union. And it was a bit of a surprise, the whole bloody thing sort of fell apart because it was a house of cards. These days, I think it's massively underestimated. But I think everybody now sees that Americans, whatever they may have done in the past, have overused this whole sanction thing. And in doing so, have promoted the multipolar world that perhaps they didn't want. And we'll come on to, uh, at the end, a little bit about gold, because gold clearly had a a role to play in Russia's uh, stabilization. And I think that just from a macroeconomic perspective, it was, the, it was the ace from up their sleeve that they produced, in the absence of which the American strategy of economically destroying their foes would have succeeded. And in terms of the BRICS and all that, as you say, there's the rapprochement between China and, and Saudi. I even saw recently uh, some mention on, on the Duran uh, channel that you, you'd mentioned um, and who I found very useful. I don't always agree with their takes, but what they are brilliant at is is producing a sort of a, a, an HD JPEG of a situation. They give you so much more information, vastly more information, than you can draw your own uh, conclusions. However, they were talking about a rapprochement, amazingly enough, between Iran and Saudi. So the tectonic plates geopolitically are, are changing, and that's very, very relevant to the outlook for money per se. And money is the, the F in financial services is finance, and that is is money. So. I really think that it behoves us all to understand. And the CBDCs, maybe we'll just put that one to one side because not one of us thinks it's any good. And at the moment, I'm still waiting for the first central bank who's going to be the first over the top and, and introduce something and saying, you know, criticism of the state <laughs> will mean you can't buy your sweeties at sweet shop when you go there on the way to school. So let's move on from that in the moment because we will come back to this hardening of currencies, as, as I called it, where the non-Western alliance, shall we say, are busy doing that. So just moving on then. So many people, and certainly I when I ran Global Fixed Interest Fund Management, took the central banks as a, as a fact of life, as, uh, just as I took gravity as a fact of life. And the sun is just, just how it is. And sure, you know, in the past, there was a gold standard and yeah, but whatever. And I think the likes of the FT are still in that. They call it, you know, barbarous relic or, or what have you. But before we get on to gold, I think that, as you say, 2008 was a, a notable time where people started to question it. The Bank of England itself subsequently admitted in its bureaucraties, technocratic language, their approach to the crisis of 2008 did lead to redistributional effects, aka the reverse Robin Hood, robbing from the poor and giving to the, the rich. So the Bank of England, this is not no conspiracy theory, the Bank of England have admitted to that. And I think that the, the critiques of central banks really fall into two groups, one of which is that they're not good for the economy, they're actually harmful for the economy, contrary to why they're sent up to be good for the economy. Central banks tend to lead to inflation, they encourage more government spending, the central banks, and going back to Graeber, 5,000 years of debt, they always end up printing too much money, revolutionary France, Weimar Republic, or now, and fiat money always ends up collapsing, which is, a, you know, I think we're a long way down that one. So that they're harmful to the economy, and secondly, that they're anti-democratic. You've got a bunch of technocrats, but who controls them is always an interesting question, from rational conversation in, you know, academia to the more paranoid 
people that, you know, Rothschild controls every central bank in the world and he's sort of sitting there or WEF controls or something like that. And, you know, the answer is that none of us know, which in itself shows a democratic deficit. In itself, the lack of transparency is a thing. So anyway, so how do you see these two huge areas in terms of the argument against the central banks being that, well, actually, if you, you know, forget, forget theory, we look at practice, how has the last century gone? You know, have they been good for the economy or have they been harmful? And also then just more philosophically, um, are they democratic? Yeah, like you, when I started out in the finance business in the late 80s, I didn't even question central banks. I didn't even know much about them. <laughs> it was only later that I started uh, questioning things because that's uh, my nature. But uh, in terms of uh, the last century, I would say central banking has uh, allowed the world to be in an endless uh, war. Uh, even though we think that World War One and World War Two ended already, but look at uh, after World War Two, we we had the Cold War, we had like a regional wars, and then after the Cold War ended uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we went right back to war in the Middle East against uh, Iraq, uh, the first uh, Iraq war. And uh, from what I hear, uh, the Americans gave Saddam Hussein the, the nod to invade Kuwait because the Kuwaitis were drilling for oil sideways into uh, Iraqi territory. <laughs> and then they uh, backstabbed him, uh, of course. So that was probably a buildup to the new war uh, in the Middle East and then the war on terror. And now we have I don't know. It's the war on uh, whatever you want to pick. Uh, we had the war on COVID. Now we have the war on Russia. We could have the war on China. And uh, the thing is, if you look back, for example, even when we had central banks in the uh, uh, late uh, 1700s, early 1800s, yes, there was a period where we went off gold. Uh, the Bank of England, I think it was called the restriction period from 1797 to 1821. That was to allow the country to fight the Napoleonic War. So they suspended convertibility. But once that ended, they went, they went back, you see. But now we went away from sound money, for example, uh, gold standard in 1914, and we, we've never gone back. And we stayed in this uh, inflationary, big government uh, as well. And people could argue, though, oh, well, the 20th, 20th century and 21st century, we've seen so many advances in technology. The average person lives so much better off than the late Victorians or early Edwardian period. But uh, the other uh, argument is, how do you know that we couldn't be doing even better if we had sound money, small government, no wars, peace? I think that's the whole problem with central banking. It, it allows for these crises. And these crises are what the central banks and the, go uh, the government, because central banks are a monopoly created by the, by the government. And it allows powerful people to sometimes even instigate these crises to give an excuse to indebt people, uh, the nations even more. And, and I think that's the definition of the last hundred years for me. And that's why we are where we are right now, a general public is poor. I saw the other day in the UK, the uh, bottom 10%, the medium wage of the bottom 10% of the UK is lower than is Slovakia. I mean, this is a, a century of, uh, that, that's what the central banks have done. And uh, you could even argue that uh, central banks might be able to 
create prosperity. But uh, there's always a crisis that they use in the, as an excuse to basically uh, rip off the public at the expense of uh, those at the top. And, and war, of course, is a very profitable business. <laughs> you know, it, it's the most profitable business, really. So that's how I see the last 110 years or so. And uh, central banking, we wouldn't be have been able to do it without central banking. Yes, indeed. Well, there's a lot in what you say. And of course, I agree with you. I think the, the major thing that you've done there is in terms of my two areas of critique, harmful to the economy and, and anti-democratic. Um, I think you've picked up very well the dog that didn't bark or <laughs> the implicit dog in, in there, which is that monetary systems have always been heavily related to militarism. And uh, as you know, David Graeber points out that although the general economics professions say that, oh, money evolved from barter, there is no anthropological evidence anywhere that that is actually the case. And there is a lot of evidence that actually where money evolved from was that your army would be somewhere else. <laughs> and it would need to, you know, either it just stole all this stuff, which some armies did, of course. You steal everybody's food and you murder and rape them and st stuff like that. Where well, there's been lots of that in the last few thousand years, sad to say. Or you actually, you know, give them a bit of silver or something for their, for their crops or for a, a beef sandwich or whatever you might have when you're going off to war. So money has intimately been related to militarism. And so I do think, yes, it's indeed, it's one of the critiques of a central state, really, not just central banks. I mean, you know, if we look at uh, whatever the 16th century, Henry VIII's dissolution, the monasteries, which were vast, they were the richest organisation in the country at the time. And he dissolved them, nicked all their money, so he could go and fight France more. So one of the real concerns for those of us going forward who are anti any war whatsoever, which is definitely me, I'm a hippie at heart, even if I don't have the the hair for it. Going back to 1972 and the, the Vietnam War and, and all that kind of stuff, I was uh, very much uh, against that uh, kind of thing. Is that money and fiat money and the state needing more money almost inevitably comes back to war? And that I think that a, one, a great benefit, let's say we can wave a magic wand and you, know, you and I are transported 10 years hence when all this globalism and insanity is, the old order has just died and collapsed in the heap. And we're, we are on some island. Peter Thiel is president for life. And it's, sort of, you know, it's a libertarian kind of thing. And, and the state has some laws, you know, 10 commandments, that'll be, probably be fine. Or the Buddhist version, it doesn't really matter. You have sort of a list of 10 or eight things and everything else is just uh, what people are allowed to do with each other. Then I think that a sound money scheme would mean that this island, even if it wanted to, can go off and kill people abroad, which is, I'm afraid to say, what uh, militarism has really involved, whether it's been the UK or the, the US for the past centuries or uh, your ancestors back in, in Portugal. So, yes, I think the war is an important one. I think um, just to try and sort of ping-pong some of these things back, so both you and I, and this is my fault, not yours, have used the word central banks kind of loosely in two senses, one of which is there is a central bank I mean, the Bank of England was created in what, what it was, 1698 or something like that, but it didn't have the roles then that it does have now. So there is a, a role in the central bank in printing, shall we say, good currency. I'll say more about that in, in a second. And then there's where we are at the, the moment, which is the, the central bank in printing fiat money and all that kind of thing. So we have central banks with, let's call it sound money, with silver money or, or gold money, and helping the government just manage its sort of cash flow and accounts and, and that kind of role where I think you need something. And one example of, I think, the earliest type of central banking, we were talking before about ChatGPT, and uh, you'd had challenges getting something sort of revolutionary out of it, and, and I'd been a bit more successful. Um, and I think a lot of using ChatGPT as a research tool well comes into using the kind of prompts. But uh, one of the interesting things I got out of it was about monetary policy in Anglo-Saxon England. 
So if you go back to hard currencies and no central banks, and it's exactly as happened in the late Roman Empire, what happens is the people producing the coins just shave them a little bit. <laughs> Every day they stick another 1% of the silver in their own pockets and say, oh, here's a coin, here's a shilling, and the shilling goes back to Anglo-Saxon times. Here's a shilling. And so every now and then, the various kings of England, before we had one king, did eventually have to step in and, and go, hang on, no, 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 no. I'm going to produce the money, it's going to have my head on it, and it will have this much silver in, silver shillings going back a long, long time. So just on that point, maybe we should drill in a little bit more into central banks in terms of central banks and current monetary policy, fiat inflation, and central banks as just managing the government's cash flow, a department in the, in the government, as well as making sure that the coins are made of silver and aren't made of some, you know, 90% silver and 10% tin. Yeah, I, I think he, the Bank of England's, uh, yeah, founded in 1694. And, and at the time, I think they had a, the monarch or the crown had two million pounds in debt. And that was a way to consolidate the debt. And what the Bank of England creation did was allow for for the government now to, to create a national debt. And yes, uh, this currency was a lot sounder back then. But don't forget, I think it was James Patterson, one of the founders of the Bank of England. He actually said that we have the, uh, the privilege to be able to earn interest on, uh, on money created out of thin air. So uh, the uh, fractional reserve was already existent. And uh, yeah, despite the fact that the money was sounder, I think it was the first step into uh, basically lumbering the debt of the monarch to the people because prior to the Bank of England, if a king or a queen wanted to go to war, they were responsible for those debts, not, not the public. And I think that's the key about the Bank of England is that it uh, melded the national debt to the public and it made it all very, uh, how can I say, technical. And uh, I'm going to recommend a book by William Cobbett. He was actually an MP in the 1830s, and he wrote a book called Paper Again. Well, it's not a book. It's a series of, of letters because he was in prison once for basically defaming uh, King George III, said he defamed him, and so he put him in prison for a couple of years. And he wrote letters to his followers, and it's Paper Against Gold, containing the history and mystery of the Bank of England, the funds, the debt, the lowering and raising the, of the value of paper money. So he basically talks about that with the creation of the Bank of England, it made uh, fighting wars and uh, increasing the power of the state much easier. And the people, of course, who, who were involved were uh, the bankers, the, the very wealthy families in, uh, in the realm, and uh, they were the major shareholders. And uh, there's a critic uh, of the Bank of England, a guy called A.H.M. Ramsey. He was an MP during World War II who was imprisoned, actually, by Churchill. And, and he wrote about the Bank of England, how if you look at uh, a farmer, a farmer has 100 pounds worth of land and he gets a, a yield of 4% a year. He has to work hard, get up every morning. But a banker, he would have 100 pounds. He will lend it out. 10 times and get 4%, but that really means 40%. So he said, can you imagine what would, will happen to England after uh, hundreds of years of this scheme where the, the bankers can create value out of thin air and earn interest on it, and, and then uh, the farmers and, and the average person. And I think that's where we are, uh, that, that criticism was right. 
of 300 plus years of central banking has not really done much to the uh, general public's uh, prosperity, I would say. And uh, the 1% now is even smaller. It's like 0.1%. So yeah, money was sounder when the Bank of England uh, uh, was uh, founded as, uh, I think it was by royal uh, assent. But uh, it wasn't totally sound, I would say, because they had this uh, power of fractional reserve. And the other thing as well, they always used the crises, as I said, as an excuse for emergencies. So that, that's how I see it. Yes, it's an interesting overview of the question of it and, and the extent to which if you create an organization in the state, it doesn't empower the people, but it makes it easier for the state to do what it wants. Because as you say before, kings would go off to war and they'd have to sort of get someone to pay for it. So they'd just send the boys around to go and sort of you know, knock on doors and all that, that kind of stuff, or rather the barons, and then the barons would you know, steal from below. And I think this problem of centralised power is the, is the fundamental issue. And one of the problems here is that central banks concentrate a certain type of, of power in apparently neutral technocratic fashion, but it's, it's not. And I say power is the real thing, because one of the things, just looking at my little researchers this morning, was rather sort of horrendous thing actually. You may have come across the expression pay through the nose, but I don't know whether you know where it comes from, and I certainly didn't know where it comes from. Pay through the nose comes back to the days when the Vikings were marauding around these islands, and the Vikings would turn up and they say, we want a few shillings of yours, thank you very much. And if you didn't have them, they would slit your nose from, from lip to eyebrow, which was called paying through the nose. And we, we have this sort of phrase now, but we've forgotten how gruesome it was. And we were in, on a separate example, we were in Lewis recently, and there was a, a plaque about Simon de Montfort, I think in the 13th century. And he'd led a, a bunch of barons against the king, because the king, aka the state, in those days, the king was spending way too much and the taxes are too high and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So the general problem will always arise with or without central banks, that if you've got some centralized power, <laughs> They will use that power to, to bully everyone else, but it's just a, a, an agency for multiplying it. And, and back to your point about the kind of Ponzi scheme that this MP was talking about, it's growing and growing and growing. As David Graeber points out, every example of a fiat system we've ever had has ended up in, in, in collapse, which is why back in the Bible you've got the debt jubilee, you have to wipe all the debt out and, and, start, and start again and, and these kind of matters. So, yes, so I think... The innocent listener, even if they may detect that you and I come from a rather similar position, will hopefully get the idea that there are some serious critiques that central banks have to answer. I think in terms of coming from one position or another, uh, it's a bit like my Gedenkin about America. Look, why doesn't America just split into two? <laughs> and one bit can do all its sort of, you know, wokey, whatever stuff, and the other bit can go back to being sort of following the Constitution much more closely th than it is and, and not fighting abroad and making Ron Paul president or something. And we'll run this little experiment and see how the two halves um, do. But moving on to a world in which you and I are given the role talking about fantasies. <laughs> we have a crazy dream tonight. We have too much red wine and too much cheese before bed and we have a dream. And in the dream, we've got to design the new world. What is the opposite? So if you are against injections, the opposite is clear. If you're against masks, the opposite is clear. If you're against the idea that, that America is spreading peace throughout the world in, in, in Syria, in Libya, in Iraq and in Ukraine, if you're against that idea, the opposite is very clear. In terms of the opposite to central banks, I think one of the problems of the very small opposition to central banks in terms of those people who are focused and know about it is the tendency of all, let's say, revolutionary movements 
to fragment as lampooned by Monty Python, the life of Brian. You've got the Judea popular front and you've got the popular Judea front and they all hate each other and all this kind of thing. So if you dive into it, you know, you've got Rothbard's view and he's not quite the same as Ron Paul's and you've got Lou Rockwell and you've got the Mises and you've got all these people who end up sort of squabbling over the little detail. But in a sense, the little detail, A, doesn't really matter compared to the big picture. And B, in this world of samsara, in this world of duality, human beings are always going to argue over, uh, argue over stuff. So let's just start with the big picture. The opposite, I assume, from what you say, is that we go back to some kind of gold standards. How you get there is unclear because the people in power are never going to vote to have their power reduced. But let's say somehow we wave a magic wand. Is there anything in this human realm that, that is perfect? If we wave a magic wand and we get Mario's head of the Bank of England and he abolishes it and he says we've all got gold coins now and all that. Will you just sort of sit there and have to smoke a cigar for you know, the next few decades of your, your reign or will there always be issues to deal with? Well, I, I think the uh, solution uh, or the opposite of uh, central banking is uh, competition. I'm not against banks because some people will accumulate more money than others and they'll have to uh, safeguard it. They might not want to keep it at, at home. And that's what uh, the function of a bank used to be. Or you might want to lend that money so the, the banker will become a, a, a money lender as well. So I think it's very simple. You could even let the Bank of England survive, but let it survive as just any other bank and not backed by the government, no monopoly. And you also abolish legal tender laws because... Legal tender laws force the public to use the fiat currency because if it, they didn't have the legal tender laws, why would you accept a piece of paper as payment? A piece of paper is worth nothing unless it has legal tender laws backing it and also forcing you to pay your taxes in that legal tender. So I, I think it's very relatively simple, and I think Ron Paul has spoken about that. You... Uh, yeah, abolish the Bank of England or tell the Bank of England you no longer have a monopoly. You're going to have to compete for your deposits and you will abolish legal tender law. As to what people want to use as money, I don't think that's for me to decide. I think that's for the market to decide. And uh, historically, they've used uh, anything from conches to cigarettes. But I think gold and silver have been traditionally in the last two and a half thousand years what people have gone to. Uh, it could be something different. Uh, something new could come up to compete with gold and silver, cryptocurrency. So I don't see myself as becoming governor of the Bank of England and smoking my Cohiba and telling people what to do. I see maybe the Bank of England becoming uh, just like any other bank and uh, competition because, yeah, that's what the free market is, competition. And uh, some people will argue, well, and then you could have banks that abuse that power and they, they, they will have bank runs and people will lose their money. But we're having, we're, we've been having that for the last uh, 20 years anyway, and central banking hasn't really helped. The Federal Reserve was created to provide an elastic currency and a sound currency, and look at how the dollar's done since it was created. So I don't think it's a good uh, argument. So yeah, I see that, free market and money. And then the other argument could be, well, you know, like you said, uh, people used to mint their coins and then they were no good. They uh, cheated. And then uh, the king or the queen came and said, I will make sure that the coins are good. We have our own mints. I mean, I wouldn't even be against that. The government, 
providing that service. But then you have to have a, a government or a state that is trustworthy. I mean, right now, I wouldn't trust anything to do with government. So that's the other problem. But uh, again, it's like when you buy a car. It, <laughs> if they produce a really bad car, a, a com- whatever company, and uh, people die from it, the brakes don't work or something, people are going to stop buying those cars. It's going to be the same thing with money, I think. That's how I see it. Yes, it's, it's interesting. So there's a lot in what you say, and uh, I think you get my vote for the Governor of Bank of England, Mario. If, there was, if we're in this parallel universe that we suddenly go into, there was an election process for it, and it, it was that way back in the past. And I've mentioned on the podcast before that in the early 17th century, I mean, the poor East India Company, I feel sorry for them, and probably the only person in this country who does, but they had many crises. They were uh, attacked, physically attacked many, many times, and they were in... And one of the reasons they were attacked, and actually the economists in the East India Company in the early 17th century created the concept of a balance of payments because they were destroying the country's <laughs> balance of payments in terms of store of precious wealth. Because when they went originally over to Spice Islands, India, East Indies basically, they would take woolly jumpers and stuff, which is the kind of thing we made over here. And, and funny enough, people didn't need woolly jumpers in the Spice Islands. They said, we're not having bloody woolly jumpers. Well, what do you like? Oh, we like silver and stuff. So the money market so that you were working in grew up in the 17th century precisely because the East India Company needed to get Spanish talas, the Spanish dollars, silver currency, because people would use that elsewhere. So it used to be the way that, and this is at the great age of uh, exploration and expansion of England from being some irrelevant little rainy island, which it was, we're going back to that, I think we're there already, was when there wasn't a system of currencies. And you're talking about the, the Bank of England, I think it only got its sort of semi-full powers in 1844 with a, with a Banking Act then. But the important point, and I make this point about limited liability in the company, which is something else that everyone just takes for granted and next to nobody knows about, that's an even harder, harder cause to push that one that I've written quite a bit about, is that before central banks, the entire Industrial Revolution happened. If I had to say one unique thing about this country is that it had a thousand years, comparatively compared to other countries, of pushing individual liberty and letting people do their own thing. And as we saw in the early America, a case saddened by the destruction of the, the Native Americans, but let's put that to one side. If you let people do their own thing within an appropriate framework of laws, so they just get around, don't go around massacring people like the Mongols, then it is creativity and people will solve it. And as you say, then um, in the case of the uh, cryptocurrencies, I have a problem with the cryptocurrencies in that they're not really real. But I can see that if you're a tech person, you say, well, money isn't real. It's a bunch of bits in the computer. And I've got a better bit in the computer. And I think I want to use that and my mates want to use it. Well, fine, there's, there's no reason to stop them. But the transitional issues you refer to are, are, are not inconsiderable, which I think is why one finds that one gets a collapse like the Weimar Republic, like the French uh, Revolution, that has to have somebody coming in and, and, and changing it. Because there's no point putting it to a vote because everyone will disagree. And one of the problems you've got at the moment is after a century of the nanny state, or certainly post-Second World War, as I said the New York podcast, Hayek was correct, we're completely down the road to serfdom already. If you've got a state who believes, even in the heart of hearts, even if they're being nice, their job is to protect people. Well, they end up smothering them and they end up with a crap education system. And I was recently looking at Thomas Sowell's Dismantling America and it reminded me quite a lot of Peter Hitchens that you know the way the US and the UK have been un- undone is by a- an appalling education system collapse compared to what it was 50 years ago, especially for the poor. I mean, this country, as Hitchens points out, the statistics show that grammar schools, for example, were the main ladder out of being stuck in the working class, stuck in this 10% who are poorer off than 
if they were in Slovakia. So yes, there's a, there's a big transitional issue there, but that's not one for us to discuss. I mean, the world is going to do what the world is doing. But maybe it is it's a good point to touch on at that point, in particular, Andrew Dixon White's Fiat Inflation in Monetary France, in that uh, my understanding of having read about the first half, I think I, I have to admit, Mario, I, I, I ground to a halt before the end. There's a lot of information in there. It takes someone like you to understand it all. But basically, and this is a sort of an economic expression used in, in markets and, and, and other people might think it's a bit rude, but it's a very technical word. The economy was fucked when, when Napoleon came in. The currency was fucked. It was all a disaster. That sounds rude in English, but actually amongst, yeah. uh, amongst traders and, and ex-fund managers, uh, there's a very technical meaning of that. But Napoleon came in and he instituted a, a gold standard, and that was how he stabilised the, the economy. Now, going back, going back to gold standards don't stop war, Napoleon, which is a bit I don't like him for, him for going around Europe killing millions of people, but some people like Napoleon. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing he said is that I will pay everything in cash, which at the time was gold and silver. And that's how he put the country back on a gold standard or a sound money footing. Napoleon, of course, uh, came in and uh, stabilized things, but uh, it was at great expense, like you said. Yeah, millions of people died, not just uh, uh, French people, but people from all over, the, all over Europe, and it created havoc. So... And like you said before, the reason it happened in France was because the economy was fucked. <laughs> and why is that? Well, because the, the previous king, Louis XVI, and his predecessors, they spent too much money. They fought the Indian Wars. They were in debt. And it's very similar to what's happening uh, today. We have insurmountable uh, national debts in the U.S., in the U.K., uh, in Europe, and uh we have uh, even the, the consumer has a lot of that corporate debt. And so our economies are also effed, I would say, despite the fact that we've been told by Janet Yellen that everything's great. I think they patch things up nowadays in, in the economy through deficit, government deficit spending. You look at the U.S. government, the budget deficit there is still more than 5% of GDP. So if they weren't spending all that money, the economy would certainly be in a recession. But what comes after it? I mean, it will be a period of great <laughs> tribulation, if you want to call it that, a chaos. And we could get another uh, Napoleon. Or like uh, in Weimar, Germany, we got, you know, what we got in the 30s and 40s. Looking back, it's not encouraging. But that's why uh, we do what we're doing here through your podcast, through my videos, to try to get the public to learn about these things, because most people, and even people in the city, like you said, when I started out, I, I didn't know the uh, that money was so important. Uh, also, the soundness of the money was so important, because we, we just didn't think of what money was. We just went in, we tried to write as many tickets as possible, uh, and make a big bonus at the end of the uh, quarter. But we never thought, you know, what is it all about? And uh, hopefully if we try to uh, enlighten people to what it's all about, and I'm not saying I'm, <laughs> we're going to have utopia, but hopefully we'll have a, a, a better system. But uh, it's not guaranteed that it will uh, be a smooth uh, sailing through this period. It's probably going to be like going, you know, around Cape Horn. <laughs> uh, and not not through uh, like Admiral Sea 
that's a saying in Brazil, you know, when if you if you want to go sailing, you, you ne never want too much wind. You want everything to be smooth. It's not going to be smooth, but uh, at least I think hopefully, yeah, free market sound money will be something that will be still an idea. And I think that's what we need to, to keep uh, doing, keep it alive, because without it, I don't think we can have the free Western civilization that you talked about, where people are free, individuals are free, you know, that we're not doing something for the uh, collective, because I think that's a problem. And uh, I'm not being selfish. I'm just saying if if you respect each other and you try to uh, do the best for yourself, I think the world would be a lot uh, in a lot better place, because then you wouldn't have politicians trying to take things from Paul to give give to Peter. That's where all the problems uh, uh, begin, I think. Yes, and just to sort of wrap up on this point about the transition, I, I think the final question I'll put to you, Mario, will be this question of, just briefly, the, um, the use of gold, particularly by China, you mentioned, but also Russia in, in terms of gold flooring their ruble, and all of this talk you get on shows like yours about um, potential move to sort of gold standard or semi-gold standard in, in some of these countries. But before that, as I said earlier in the year, what people think of as conventional wisdom. Maybe when I was young, maybe when you were young, it was roughly right on most things, but not completely right. But these days, conventional wisdom is something that's bought and paid for. And so conventional wisdom in the uni party and in the union media on gold is it's, uh, talk about Keynes, is it, it's a barbarous relic and the FT is always writing about that. I mean, just in passing on Keynes, I was very much taken recently by YouTube. I watched by American professor James Crotty, who's written a book uh, called Keynes Against Capitalism, his economic case for liberal socialism. And, uh, you know, as a quote from this book I've got here, actually, is that, uh, he says that Keynes is misunderstood. And I think he died in about 1946. So he, this was, he was a very long time ago. It's about a century ago. This chap was living in a very different world, trying to preserve order. And they saw that you preserve order by having a, a bigger state. Well, as Hayek was forecast in a Cassandra-like fashion, that ain't going to work well, and it hasn't. But Crotty said that Keynes was not trying to save capitalism as the conventional wisdom would have it, but to replace Britain's capitalist economy with a planned or state-guided socialist economic system built around public and semi-public control of the lion's share of large-scale capital investment. The state was to use its control over capital investment, augmented by capital controls, and the main policy tool to achieve and, and sustain full employment. So after the Depression, they were very concerned, understandably, because nobody had a bloody job, and that was a disaster. So what do we do? Oh, well, nanny state knows best, was the hypothesis at that time. We've tested that one to destruction. And, and just against the conventional wisdom when it comes to gold and things, and I think I've been very persuaded by you and, and uh, other channels a year ago, and I, I put some... You probably won't like how I did it mostly, because I put it via um, ETFs and stuff, but I've tried to reduce the basis risk. Gold and, and silver in, um, uh, in my SIP, which has done better than the rest of the SIP, I think, over the last... 12 months, it's quite hard to put the physical stuff into SIPs, different thing entirely. But just in case the listeners don't know, uh, before I ask you about gold and uh, Russia and China to wrap up, that there's a well-known uh, chairman of the Fed called Alan Greenspan who did a huge vault fast. And I've got a, a wonderful uh, quote of his from 1967, long before he decided to sort of sell his soul to the devil, put his face on Time magazine. In 1967, Alan Greenspan wrote, an almost hysterical antagonism toward the gold standard is one issue which unites statists of all persuasions. They seem to sense perhaps more clearly and subtly than many consistent defenders of laissez-faire that gold and economic freedom are inseparable, that the gold standard is an instrument of laissez-faire and that each implies and requires the other. And so that was a chap who became chairman of the Fed. Apparently in his later years, when he was in his 90s and sort of was forgetting to censor himself as one does when one gets older perhaps.
he started mumbling again about, of course, the, the, the gold standard. But anyway, so we've got our problems in the West. It is what it is. You can't, in, in metaphorical terms, keep kicking the can down the road. <laughs> completely ruining my metaphor. Every time you kick the can down the road, another half a dozen appear, so you've got, you end up with too many cans that you can kick them all at one, one time. But just very briefly, just to wrap up, in terms of all these rumours about China's going into a gold standard or a semi-gold standard or a commodity standard, where do you think uh, we are roughly? What sort of Mario's crystal ball say about 2023? And, uh, and uh, quotes, as I call it, hardening of the BRICS and their currencies. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that Russia and China going into a gold standard doesn't mean that uh, they're going to become less authoritarian or like uh, not uh, more democratic. I think they're doing it to become more sovereign from the United States and the West because in the end of the day, uh, there's an old saying, he who has the gold makes the rules. So I think that's why, why they're doing that. And, and I think uh, 2023, uh, uh, we're going to continue to see an acceleration of the move towards these countries accumulating gold. I think in the last year, 2022, the most gold was bought by uh, sovereign countries since 1967. And we just saw, uh, just came out now that uh, China has continued to buy in January. So I think we're going to be moving uh, quicker into uh, that kind of uh, scenario. And, and I think they can only really use gold uh, as uh, the major reserve asset for I wouldn't even maybe call it a BRICS currency, but it will be like a, a Bretton Woods of the East where uh, there will be a few dominant currencies, but other countries will have to settle their trade with gold. You know, if China has a surplus with Indonesia, the Indonesians will have to ship some gold at the end of the year and vice versa in the other countries. That's how I see it. Whether it will be ready in 2023, it's difficult to say, but I think we're quickly moving towards that. Right, good. So that's been a nice tour d'horizon. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. My brand partner for the podcast, Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Mario, maybe you'd like to do some shout-outs for your uh, channel or sponsors or anything like that, as you've been very kind in donating your time and expertise to summarising for the listeners. It's certainly been a great pleasure for me to have a, uh, a macro uh, conversation with you, as, of course, if you're producing daily content, it's always sort of the news, 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 and it's quite nice to zoom up to the, um, the big picture, which you do do occasionally yourself and in interviews with some sort of very interesting people uh, as well. Yeah, my... Uh... Content is uh, published every day, as uh, you said, on uh, Maneco64. That's my YouTube channel. So you can find uh, daily uh, uh, videos there. I, I do a live stream on Sunday. And as for uh, partners, well, I, I have a, a few uh, precious metals dealer that I partner with. One in London is called Gold Investments. They've been in business for over 40 years. They're family-run business. You can give them my promo code is Maneco64. And for my uh, North American viewers, I've partnered recently with uh, ITM Trading. You can find their stuff if you Google ITM Trading. They will help you, especially if you are a novice in precious metals. Yeah, so there you go. Thank you uh, for your uh, invitation, Mike. 
Excellent. Well, anybody that didn't get those can look in the show notes of any of Maneko's uh, videos and, and click on a, a link rather than Googling them. And I guess like everyone else, Mario, the interesting thing about FS actually is you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and the world has changed slightly the next day. So we all keep going to bed and waking up in the morning and seeing how it's changing. But um, again, going back to Graeber's book, some of the big picture themes are, are, are very common. The world we're in is financially in terms of what money is unsustainable and we shall see what happens going forward. So thank you very much for that and congratulations on all your hard work and keep it up for all of our benefit. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash Mike Balliman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.